think that I was dehydrated because at the hospital they gave me two bags of that sugar water and I felt like a new person after that. I did wish they would have made it in the flavor of sweet tea and allowed me to drink it, <laughs> but they wouldn't. So my wife, my daughter, asked me, so what are you preaching on this week? And I said, I think I'll do storms again. <laughs> and they didn't really like that. But seeing as how I did live out an object lesson last week, I thought I would preach today on the necessity of eating dessert for breakfast. <laughs> okay, if, if you don't know me, that was a joke, so don't panic. <clears throat> After last week, someone asked me how it was that I decided to preach on the particular passage that I did, the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm. I did not go looking for a storm passage. In fact, I have always been, and this is probably an answer no one would have guessed, I've actually always been intrigued by the story of the woman with, with the issue of blood. And that occurs in chapter 5. It's one of the miracles where Jesus could, performs 4, the end of chapter 4, and 3 in chapter 5. I've always wondered about that because in, in college, all of us in a Bible study were young believers, and the girls all thought that that just didn't seem like a good way to treat women, that somehow God was, was just not being fair to women. I didn't really think that was the explanation, but I never really took the time to look at it till I was rereading it there and said, decided that I want to look into this a little bit more. So we're actually going to look at that. We're going to do, last week there I covered one. This week, ideally, I would cover three to cover all four. So I plan to cover one and a half. And we'll see if we can do that. All of these miracles were used by Jesus in kind of a big picture way to help present and justify to the people, to prove to the Jewish people that he was the Messiah, the one who had been promised for thousands of years. And that not only that, he was the son of God, that somehow he was God come down in human flesh. Mark 1.1 tells us that Jesus is that Messiah and the son of God, and for about the first half of Mark, the first eight chapters, Jesus does a lot of things to substantiate that. We're going to see that some, but I also want us to see that Jesus has a special concern for women, I think, and I hope that we can all see that, and that he was not afraid to go against the, the values, the culture of his day. There are three healings in Mark chapter 5. One thing that they all have in common is they're kind of amazing miracles. The first guy is not simply demon-possessed or influenced. He has lots of demons. The next is this woman, and she has an illness or a condition. She's had for 12 years. 
And we'll look into that a little more, but she's never found the cure. And then lastly, we're going to look at a little bit of the story of Jairus, how his daughter was near death, and he came to Jesus asking Jesus to come and lay his hands on her so that she could live. We're going to see that instead he didn't make it on time, and she died. But that really only opened the door, the possibility for him to do an even more amazing miracle by raising her from the dead, bringing her back to life. So these are three miracles in chapter 5 that I think are, are astounding to, to look at, to study, to focus on. One thing that all of these also have in common is the idea of uncleanness. Uncleanness was also called in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, impurity or defilement. And it had to do with their ceremonial impurity or their ritual defilement, which I realize probably doesn't help you understand it. But what it all dealt with is the privilege, and that's what it was, the privilege of going to worship to when they were in Jerusalem and to going to the temple to offer sacrifices. When they were in Galilee, which was where Jesus was at this time, they had a synagogue. And only those who were clean, as the Bible uses the word, were allowed to worship. Like there were three states, you might say, unclean, clean, and holy. Only the clean could approach the holy. The unclean could not bypass the clean and get to the holy. That was just about a sentence of death. The Jewish people took this extremely seriously. And I want us to hopefully get just a smidgen of an understanding of the respect, the profound fear, righteous fear of God that they had. You know, today, I don't, the world certainly doesn't have that. I'm not sure many of us Christians have that as well. To realize that when we come into God's presence, and we have so many privileges as New Testament believers, people who have been redeemed by his son. But when we come into God's presence, he hasn't changed. He's still God. And we need to acknowledge that and correctly look at ourselves before we want to learn more about him. So all of these dealt with ritual uncleanness. Now, uncleanness was not dirty had nothing to do with dirt or dust, anything or germs, nothing like that. My mom used to say, Barry, it took you five hours to clean your room and 15 minutes to unclean it. In, America, uh, in English, we use the word unclean as essentially a synonym for dirty or germy. Unfortunately, that is, for us, that is not what it means. And I say unfortunately because... Our brains just naturally hear unclean, and we think dirt, dust, um, muddy shoes, whatever. That was foreign. That was no part of their understanding 
of cleanliness or uncleanness. Again, it all had to do with were they in a position to worship God. If they had been living a, a sinful life, a purposefully sinful life, no, they didn't come to, they didn't presume to skip through the, the clean, the righteous, and get into the presence of the holy. We don't have to offer sacrifices in our day to become clean. But we do need to take more seriously that we need to confess, acknowledge our sins before we come into God's presence. Too easy for us to treat God, well, almost like a, you know, a friend, somebody sitting a few rows away from you in church. And God does love us, and it's kind of a mystery that he loves us so much and accepts us, but yet, again, I would say he's still God. We need to realize what a privilege we have in being able to approach him without fear, with confidence, and it's all because of nothing we've done. It's all because his son came to the planet, to earth, to live as God wanted him to live, as he wants us to live. And then because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. Without that, we could not get anywhere close to truly worshiping God. You know, I kind of think of it like this. Some people approach God with um, almost like, would you go into... Go up to the Queen of England or go to Windsor Castle, knock on the door and say, Hiya, Queenie, I'm looking for you and I hope that we can have some time to talk. You wouldn't. Of course, you wouldn't get anywhere close to that because of her guards. Same with the President of America. They're not holy, but they are separated. You wouldn't get anywhere close to shaking the President's hand unless you had already been scrutinized quite a bit. And yet again, it seems that we rush into God's presence without taking the time to consider whom it is that we're really dealing with. Okay, uncleanness can come about for various ways. Uncleanness was something that the average Jew would, would experience perhaps every day or many days of the week. There was nothing wrong with being unclean. It just had to be dealt with. There was no shame in being unclean. There was no fear in being unclean, except and unless a Jew would not go through the steps to become clean. Not doing that was what the Old Testament would call a high-handed sin or a deliberate sin. And those were not treated very kindly. Well, here's what makes uncleanness a little bit of a mystery to us is what makes a person ritually, ceremonial unclean? Primarily, I mean, it did include like touching an unclean animal or touching the body of a person who had died. But primarily in a day-to-day -day life, it had to do with the various bodily discharges. Now, not tears, not elimination, not lactation, but the other kinds of 
of emissions or discharges, semen, blood, pus even from a sore, and even spit. If someone spat on you, you were unclean, as well as probably angry. But all of these things were normal, just part of life. There was nothing wrong in incurring uncleanness. Again, I say that the entire issue, though, dealt with now, what are you going to do about it? Because God had set things up in such a way that he had given these three categories. And he said, the unclean cannot immediately come in to my presence. Why? Because he is so, and I can't think of the best word, so other, so different from us that we need to learn who he is, what he is like, so that we don't inadvertently sin against him by rushing into his presence, by taking for granted the access to God that we have. I'd like to encourage you on your own time to read Leviticus chapter 15, because that tells a lot about the uncleanness. But I want to read a little bit of it for us. So if you turn to Leviticus 15, beginning with verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge, it starts with men first, his discharge is unclean, and this is the law of his uncleanness for his discharge. Whether his body runs with the discharge, is blocked up, it's uncleanness, the bed he touches, the seat, he sits in, clothes he wears, all of those are unclean. How do you deal with the uncleanness? Mostly by doing a ceremonial washing, not a washing with soap like we think of today, but a ceremonial dipping of himself, spraying water on himself, and um, waiting until the following day. Now, the following day started at night. So they were unclean during the day, but come the evening, if they had gone through this procedure, they were clean again. I always thought it was pretty neat. Their day started at night, so their very first thing they get to do is sleep on their day as the day begins. That's the last thing we do. Okay, I won't really read further, but if you go down, you'll see that, let's see, beginning with verse 19, I think. It's when a woman has a discharge, and it goes on with the various ways of dealing with that. Basically, it's very similar to when a male has a discharge. Women are not treated more, more harshly in any way. The only difference is, by the nature of the body and discharges, a male discharge doesn't last very long. A female discharge can last you know, seven or so days. And so it's not that God's being unfair. It's simply in the nature of how our bodies differ. Let me also now turn you to Exodus chapter 19. And I want to read a little bit about that because that will help us get an idea of what it was like for the Israelites to enter God's presence. 
If you recognize chapter 19, you'll know that comes right before 20, and 20 contains the Ten Commandments. A lot of times when we study the Ten Commandments, we start in chapter 20, verse 1. That seems reasonable. What we ought to do, though, is go back minimally to chapter 19, because that sets the stage for God's speaking to them in chapter 20. Let me start in chapter 19, beginning with verse 1 of Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I, this is the Lord speaking now, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you, I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, since I've done all of that in my grace and mercy for you, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Courtney, Revelation 1. A kingdom of priests. And the holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now God has, again, redeemed them out of Egypt, carried them, led them all this way. He's done so many kind things for them, and yet you're going to see that he still says there's a limit to how closely they could get to him. Let me Go um, verse, just before verse 10. But when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Set them apart. Let them wash their garments. Two days. It took them two days to prepare for just this one visitation from God. That's not the idea of God we typically have, is it? But this is God himself speaking and telling the people what to do. This was not Moses' harebrained idea. This came straight from the Lord because he is so utterly holy. So go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day... 
The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch, even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, or else you would become unclean as well. But he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether beast, animal, or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman, which again, women think that's an insult to them. It's not. It's the man that would become unclean because of normal relations. It had nothing to do with the woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. How would you expect God, if he were to visit earth, how would you expect him to appear or, or act? I'm sure they were not expecting this, but thunders, lightning, thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. In other words, it wasn't like just a cloud of smoke that didn't move. There were active thunderings, active lightnings, and smoke moving up at the, excuse me, 19. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. You know, just stopping there, what, though it could take various forms, what if those who were pastors, teachers, um, Sunday school teachers, whatever it may be, children's church, Awana, anyone who taught others, what if we went through some kind of a consecration before we ever spoke on behalf of God? Not saying it had to be two days long, not saying you have to wash your clothes but from the heart, we could all consecrate ourselves more fully to the Lord before asking him to use us as his spokespeople. <clears throat> Verse 23, And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. He, Moses is just repeating what God had already told them. But you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests 
and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, and then you have the continuation in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and therefore you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. That's how serious it was when the people, the Israelites were in their first initiations, if you will, of getting to know the Lord. And the Lord, far from making it easy, just um, helped them begin to realize that he is not like any human. Now, yes, Jesus came, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven to earth and took on the form of a human. But even he, in his humanness, could not fully represent all that God was. Well, anyway, and I've probably taken too long on that, but I wanted you to understand some of purity and why it was so important to the people. <clears throat> what we're going to see is that this woman had a condition that made her ceremonial impure. The demonically controlled man, who we won't read about, also was unclean. He was unclean because of the demons. He was unclean because he was a Gentile. He was unclean because he uh, was bleeding and cut, used rocks to scratch and cut himself. The guy was basically hopeless apart from the touch of Jesus. This, we're going to see some differences and similarities between Jairus and this woman. It's interesting, first of all, Jairus is named. The woman is not. Perhaps to her, her delight, while her story is being told 2,000 years later, no one still knows her name. Jairus, and by the way, when there are various characters in the New Testament persons who are named, the Gospels began to circulate within 20, 30 years of Jesus' life and death. Had these been erroneous, had there never been a Jairus, there were enough people still around who would be able to say, hey, wait, that's wrong. There was no Jairus. His daughter was never ill. But you have various facts like this, or various details given in the Gospels. People could have used those to upend people's confidence in the Gospels, but they didn't. Oh, some tried, but they weren't able to. Everything that they could trace back through other discoveries has supported exactly what the New Testament says. <clears throat> these guys, uh, these gals, these women had something, several things in common, several things not in common. As I say, Jairus was a male, a Jewish leader, woman. She was poor. She was helpless. She was an outcast. She was chronically separated from Israel's religious life, whereas Jairus lived it, administrated it every day. 
By the way, some commonalities. Of course, they're both females that we'll be dealing with, both in hopeless conditions. The daughter is at the point of death and actually does pass away before Jesus gets there. They're both called daughters, interestingly. Also in common is the fact that there was a, a period of 12 years. The woman that had her condition 12 years, the girl was 12 years old. There's even more than that. But let me turn you now to Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to have to zip through, but we'll see how much we can cover. Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, this time to the west side, to the Israel side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. So Jesus is back now on the Israeli or Israel side of the Sea of Galilee. A synagogue ruler comes up to him by the name of Jairus. Synagogue ruler was not a, a rabbi, was not really equivalent to pastors in the Christian church, but he did oversee the business of the synagogue. He oversaw its maintenance, made sure all the various accoutrements were in place for their worship. So he had kind of a semi-Dennis Fay role, semi-John Wathen role. He couldn't do all that Dennis did. There's no human on the planet who can do all that Dennis does. But anyway, this guy was a very high official. Nevertheless, what does he do? He comes to Jesus and he falls down on the ground in front of him, throws himself at his feet and asks Jesus to come and help his daughter. He doesn't say, I deserve you to come. He implores Jesus to come. And picking back up in verse 24, and he, Jesus, went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, Jairus' daughter is near death. Jesus has no time to spare. So what happens? An interruption. It seems like it happens that way to us, doesn't it? That we are so pushed for time sometimes, and we cannot handle any interruption, and Lo and behold, interruption. Boss calls, child falls, scrapes their knees, whatever it may be, interruptions. It's interesting that Jesus never complained about his interruptions. Now, yes, he had power and abilities we didn't have, but by and large, the people still didn't get that point. And I'm sure he witnessed, in a sense, to God's character just by how he handled the interruption. Crowds were thronging around him. Suddenly, though, a woman enters the scene, and she has her own heartbreaking situation. Verse 25, there's a woman who had a discharge of blood, which would have been a chronic menstrual bleeding disorder. She had had it for 12 years. She had suffered under many physicians. She had spent all that she had, was no better, but rather grew worse. 
I know the women here are probably thinking, now wait, were all the doctors at that time men? And when I say yes, they were, the women are saying, okay, enough said, that settles it. That's why she wasn't getting any help, but instead was only getting worse. On top of all that hassle that she had been through, most likely she was chronically anemic and chronically miserable. And as I said before, on top of all that, now she was ceremonially unclean. In fact, it's very likely, I think this probably started when she reached maturation. So that was around the age of 12 or 13. So this woman is 24, 25, and I think it's a high chance that she had not been to the temple in these 12 years because she was not clean. She would not have been allowed in. I don't even think she's been to the local synagogue because the same thing. She had to be ritually clean, and people knew enough about her to know that she wasn't. Let me go with verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up to him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth, told him her entire story in front of other people, in front of people who would have been appalled at her presence if they knew her entire truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed, or what it means there is remain healed of your disease. He's saying out loud, he's saying in front of all the crowds, She is clean, she is healed now, and she will forever be healed from that condition. Why did Jesus um, ask her to speak up? I think because there was some healing that occurred in her personally and in the crowd that needed to take place. She certainly didn't want to speak up and mention her condition, but by doing so, she laid it out there. And she laid out, or he then presented to her the fact that you are clean. You don't have this condition anymore. You never will again have this condition. Well, there's a whole lot more I wanted to say that I have kind of run out of time. But what I hope we get out of this today, if nothing else, are two things. One, God is the God of the impossible. Doesn't mean he will always do the impossible on our behalf. But I think if we're looking, I think if we're asking, he would be more likely to do the impossible than we recognize right now. And I think he's also willing to do the impossible more often through us and in us. 
if we would make ourselves available to him, if we live the kind of consecrated lives that he would be willing to bless and to use. So Jesus is the God of the impossible. Jesus loved women as much as he loved men, and he elevated her status immeasurably in just this one incident. So I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you need, if not the impossible, at least something pretty grand. Maybe you are not so sure God really loves you when you look at your health or your financial situation. Let me try to assure you that through these two little examples, God does love you more than you know. He can do more than you think. And he is ready to do more in you and with you than you can imagine. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the God of the impossible. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would remind us to live entirely consecrated lives to you. To not take your presence for granted nor take for granted your miracle-working power. Lord, cleanse us and work through us in ways that testify to your greatness, your power, your love, and your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, now